0: Welcome to What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East edition. I'm Josh of Primary Source, a nonprofit that provides PD for K-12 teachers in global learning. Learn more about us by visiting www.primarysource.org slash podcasts. This episode was made possible through generous support from Qatar Foundation International, another nonprofit that inspires meaningful connections to the Arab world by creating a global community of diverse learners and educators. Learn more about QFI at www.qfi.org. Way,
1: this.
0: Yemen is one of the least well-known countries in the Middle East, at least among Westerners. Ask most people in the U.S. what they know about Yemen, and you'll probably only get blank stares. If anything, you might hear that Yemen is next to Saudi Arabia, or that it's really poor, or that Al-Qaeda operates there, and all these answers would be true. But most people don't know that Yemen is actually one of the more populous countries in the Middle East, not some backwater. They don't know that it was home to one of the region's oldest cultures, or that it's where you can find ancient cities and a number of UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Most also don't know about the terrible war there, or the water shortage, or the famine, that together are putting Yemen on track to be the site of the world's next humanitarian crisis this episode, we'll be unpacking all of it and looking at Yemen through the lenses of history, geography, and politics to give you a leg up in understanding what's going on there. We've got a lot to cover, everything from incense and coffee to assassinations and artesian wells and, believe it or not, even the Queen of Sheba herself. This is Episode 7, Water and War in Yemen.
1: has been a critical problem for Yemen long before this crisis, long before this war. I mean, Yemen has been on the edge with regard to water resources for quite some time. I would say since at least maybe 2000, water has been a critical issue. This crisis has only exacerbated that water shortage.
0: We'd like you to meet Stephen Caton, professor of contemporary Arab studies within the anthropology department at Harvard University. Professor Caton is an expert on Yemen, and he's been studying the country and its people for over 30 years. But Over the last decade or so, he's begun paying particular attention to the water crisis in the country. From his perspective, the human crises unfolding in Yemen over water, food, and increasingly public health, they're all fixable problems. It's just that no one's really interested in doing what's required to fix them.
1: The water situation, the famine, and now cholera, right, which is produced by waterborne diseases in a contaminated water supply, which is made unreliable, is now the triple threat. All of these are working together, and I say in a calculated fashion, to terrorize a population and bring it to its knees. So it is framed as a humanitarian crisis, which it is. But the political analysis is that this is an offshoot, an unfortunate offshoot of a war. I don't agree with that. I think this is a far more insidious political strategy on the part of the neighbors uh, to Yemen.
0: We're going to bring you up to speed on the war in Yemen in a little bit and explain why so many people have begun dying there. To do that, though, we need to go back in time to the very beginning of it all, which happens to be a long, long time ago. Backtracking a little bit, or rather a lot of it in this case, will give you a better sense of Yemen's rich history, its long-simmering relationships with its neighbors, and it'll show you how the past has really shaped the present.
1: Yemen is different from, uh, in fact, the whole Arabian Peninsula is different from, let's say, other regions like uh, Iraq, what was then famously called Mesopotamia or Egypt. It has no rivers. Arabia has no rivers running through it. And as a result, whatever water there is for agriculture has to be gotten either through uh, rainwater, which is collected, or through underground water. and Uh, Providing enough water through both means to have a substantial agricultural system requires a lot more ingenuity than waiting for annual seasonal floods from rivers where the riverbanks, suddenly the water expands over the riverbanks and then you can capture that flow and divert it to irrigation channels adjacent to the riverbanks. What it entails, for example, is the ability to catch rainwater as it's falling down mountainsides. Yemen is a very mountainous country, and you have to figure out a way to slow that water down and then to collect it. So what the Yemenis figured out about 1,000 years BC or BCE, in the Iron Age, roughly at a time when the Trojan Wars were raging, uh, maybe a bit earlier than that, Yemen built a dam, which is considered one of the seven wonders of the world, an enormous dam that extended across a watershed and blocked the rainwater as it was coming down these gullies at seven points. It blocked the water so it could send it down into reservoirs below the ground, where through very clever engineering the flow of the water was slowed down and then on top of it the engineering required for this water to be directed to water channels which were pitched at a certain grade that would take the water at a regular rate to fields that were several kilometers away where you had the soil that could be irrigated to produce agriculture. So these are called underground ganats or channels, and they are characteristic of much of the agriculture also in mountainous Iran and mountainous Oman. It means tunneling a water channel under the ground and then tapping into an aquifer, which will take that water to fields in the distance. It created a breadbasket for the Arabian Peninsula. Yemen exported agricultural goods, in fact, to Egypt and to Mesopotamia. We know this because there are written records in hieroglyphics and in cuneiform writing in this regard.
0: The ancient Yemeni's ability to trap water in these and other cool ways allowed them to make Yemen a breadbasket for the Arabian Peninsula and other parts of the Middle East, which is a role they played for hundreds and hundreds of years. It also made the Yemenis fabulously wealthy. One of their first big cash crops? Incense.
1: Yemen has had certain key crops that have become world-sought-after commodities. The first of these was frankincense frankincense and myrrh, which was imported into the Mediterranean world, was used in Greek and Roman funerary rituals. And of course, we associate with key biblical scenes. Yemen was the source of this trade, and it made it unbelievably wealthy because the frankincense and myrrh couldn't be shipped by the Red Sea or the Gulf because of the wind and current patterns and the complicated tacking that's required to steer a ship into a current and the wind wasn't invented yet. So it had to be taken overland by camel caravans, not across the desert actually, but between the mountains and the desert, a narrow belt that was traversable. And it was along this narrow belt that key city-states emerged, like Sheba or Seba, where the Queen of Sheba emerged as one of the wealthiest most powerful monarchs in the world, and she happened to be a woman.
0: One of Yemen's next big cash crops was coffee, which in my opinion, is probably the Yemeni's greatest gift to the world.
1: Fast forward another 2,400 years, and you're in the medieval period, and the cash crop becomes coffee. So mocha coffee, which is still a elite coffee, though it's mainly grown now in Ethiopia, not in Yemen. The coffee bean came from Ethiopia, but it was developed as a crop in Yemen for drink in Sufi rituals back in the 13th century. Eventually when the Turks came to Yemen in the 15th century, they discovered coffee and fell in love with it. And they imported it into the Turkish empire where the Turkish coffee house became famous. Now, coffee made medieval Yemen incredibly wealthy, and they became an extremely literate civilization. So the southern part of Yemen is called a manuscript culture for the reason that manuscripts were copied and housed in private libraries that contained thousands of manuscripts. It was a highly literate culture that was the basis of of its rule, not just economic power, but education and enlightenment, and they ended up building monumental mosques and monumental schools attached to these mosques that are some of the most exquisite pieces of architecture you'll see in the Muslim world. So, anciently, going as far back as 1000 BC, Yemen was as rich a kingdom that it rivaled any that you'll see in the the Near East.
0: Okay, but if Yemen was once incredibly wealthy, why is it
1: by most standards ranked among the world's poorest countries today? What happened? This all changed in the 1970s and 80s. The modern nation of Yemen was encouraged by the World Bank and other international donors to expand its agricultural system in order to generate income. And the idea was that if you generated this income, Oh, there would be more money for the farmers, and in turn, more money for those who worked in the agricultural system, which was the main sector in the Yemeni economy, and everybody would be gradually lifted out of poverty. Now, that, in the abstract, was a good idea, except for one thing, which is that, lo and behold, a drought occurred in Yemen in the 70s and lasted for I don't know, 20, 25 years. That meant that there was less rain to catch and to utilize for agriculture the way it always had been in the past. The other way was to introduce a new technology that hadn't been there before, artesian wells. So this is to use a drill that can drill deep into the earth to an aquifer, and then through a Mechanical pump, you can suck that water like a straw out of the aquifer and then use it for your agricultural system. What the geologists, the hydrologists, didn't know at the time was that these aquifers contained what is called fossil water, which means that it is not replenished once you take it out of the ground. And that has to do with the clay composition around the sediment that carries, that contains the water. It is so thick that water cannot easily seep down through it and refresh the the aquifer with water. So as these straws were sucking this water out, rain, what little there was of it, wasn't replenishing them, and you had a drawdown to drastic levels.
0: We'll come back to the topic of water in a minute. But first, we need to bring you up to speed on the current state of the civil war that we alluded to earlier. We'll start with the recent assassination of the former president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, in December 2017. And we'll flesh out the details of the conflict from there.
1: I came to Yemen for the first time in 1978. It was almost the same year that Ali Abdullah Saleh became president. And he was a very, very young man and very, Insecure, uh, everyone bet that he would make it through his first year uh, in office; that he would be assassinated, right? And everyone lost their bets. He ended up being a president for, I think, over 30 years, and he was a president because he managed to survive that long because he was the master broker the master negotiator mind you he was always brokering and negotiating for his own interests though he did have some great achievements he unified the two countries uh, unfortunately did, didn't last long and he it was a brief period of about three years when, when Yemen was had an open press and an almost democratic society but he, ended up running afoul of a number of groups, including the Houthis in the north who led a populist uprising against him. And their grievances are age-old grievances based on their having been marginalized after the 1962 revolutions. The Houthis come from descendants of the prophet Muhammad and that elite religious class ruled the country for a thousand years before the revolution. And After the revolution, many of these uh, elites neither fully assimilated to a new secular modern state nor was the state Able to kind of incorporate them in a productive way. And so there were these long simmering grievances against the state that finally erupted into open protest. And finally, the government made the mistake of actually militarily confronting them. And this was the beginning of the end for Ali Abdullah Saleh, who finally resigned in the Arab Spring. It's a big deal because he has been the political leader in a terribly divisive way for Yemen for 30 years and if anyone was going to broker deals between the different factions in the civil war it was he if the interest and the incentive was there.
0: Now in an earlier episode we noted that Yemen can be seen in some ways as a playing field in a regional Cold War between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Now that we know more about Yemen's rich history, It's easier to understand why the Saudis would be so interested in their southern neighbors' internal conflicts.
1: Yemen has historically always been the more economically potent country in the Arabian Peninsula until oil was discovered in Saudi Arabia. It has the most long-term civilization of any country in the Arabian Peninsula. It also is a very populous country. I mean, over 26 million, even with the number of people who have died, which means it may be even more populous than all of the other Gulf countries combined. And it has always been at odds with Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia has always been at odds, in fact, with all of its neighbors since the 18th century when the modern state of Saudi Arabia was founded, with the head of the Saudi state, Abdul Wahab, the founder of the Salafi religion that uh, dominates in Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia has always been this force that has tried to use its religious message and its military forces to move beyond its borders to take up as much territory in the peninsula as possible. It sees this as its manifest destiny. And so it's always been at odds with its neighbors, including Yemen. Now it has tried to handle affairs in Yemen internally, indirectly basically by paying the government administration. So when Yemen did something Saudi Arabia didn't care for, they would pull the plug by not paying the state, essentially. And that would work up to a certain point. But then when the Houthi rebellion began, it was in part also to protest the way in which Salafis in Saudi Arabia that were being brought over as soft power by the Saudis to uh, spread its influence uh, in Yemen, the way the Salafis were denigrating Shia Islam, of which the Houthis are representative of the, as the leaders. And so there, there was this added friction, this religious friction that finally spilled over into armed conflict across the border, which really sparked the military confrontation between the Houthis on the one hand and the Yemeni state, and the Houthis and the Saudis Uh, on the other. And so you have a conflict that has now been accelerated into very violent armed conflict. Okay, time to
0: bring everything together. How has this war impacted the water crisis?
1: Well, it's done so in a number of ways. The infrastructure that has been built up to harvest water and to retain water in cisterns has been badly damaged by the war. And, you know, one can point the finger of blame in different ways. Some people blame the Houthis because uh, much of this infrastructure has collapsed in areas that the Houthis control. But it has to be pointed out that the infrastructure has been aerially bombed, which is something that the Saudi and the UAE Air Force is responsible for. So these infrastructures have been targeted, and as a result, water has become more and more scarce. And also the quality uh, has become a public health risk because now there's the possibility of waterborne disease being carried through contaminated water uh, cisterns.
0: Major news outlets have done very little reporting about the war in Yemen, in large part because Western reporters have been unable to gain access to the country we don't have a good sense of what's going on on the ground, or how bad the situation really is. But one story we have heard repeatedly in the last few months is that the Yemenis are running out of food.
1: This is part of another piece which has to do with the famine in the country. Obviously, Uh, The agricultural system, which has always been under extreme stress since at least 2000, and that's really an arbitrary date, one could go further back in time, is only able to provide enough food for immediate purposes, for subsistence purposes. Now, Yemen has been moving more and more at the encouragement of the international order, that is to say the development organizations like USAID, like the World Bank, the British and the Dutch. The Yemenis have been encouraged to import uh, their food more and more because as water level declines, it becomes actually more expensive to use it internally for one's own crops. So at the end of the day, it's cheaper to import food than it is to use up expensive water, which you are in fact depleting more and more for growing crops for your own internal consumption. Now that means that when Saudi Arabia and the UAE imposed a blockade, food in the country became extremely limited. And that is a political decision. It's not related to water within the country. So there is an effort now to induce famine, along with a water shortage exacerbated by the bombing of infrastructure, meant to bring a population, not a state, because there is no state, not to bring a government to its knees, but to bring a population to its knees.
0: In essence, the problem is twofold. Problem number one, water is hard to come by, and the water that's there is increasingly becoming contaminated, which is why diseases like cholera are starting to spread. Problem number two, there's no food. In part because of the water shortage, but according to Professor Caton, largely because of the Saudi-led blockade. How can all this be fixed? Well, let's start by talking about the water shortage first, beginning with an idea that's been proposed that maybe Yemen could just use seawater provided they take out all the salt first.
1: Now, what about desalination? This is the thing, of course, that has saved the Gulf. It's saved Israel, as a matter of fact. Well, desalination is still costly, and it is still not at the point where you can... Use alternative fuel resources like wind or sun. But the other thing is, is that even if Yemen had the money to do that or the oil to do it, you'd have to pump the water from the sea to the mountains where most of the population lives. Because as I said, this was the agricultural center, this was the agricultural zone of Yemen. Well, water is a very heavy substance. To pump it eight, five, six, seven thousand feet above sea level, is almost impossible. I mean, you could do it if you had a lot of money. Transporting it by truck is possible, but that's a lot of trucks going over a lot of highways. So desalination isn't economically feasible or even perhaps physically feasible in a country like Yemen.
0: Ultimately, though, Professor Caton reminds us that the water crisis is in many ways a crisis of politics that requires a political solution.
1: And there's the rub. The other last alternative is moving people to the coast where you could desalinate, but then you have to provide them with an income on the coast. This is why the port of Hodeidah, which was also bombed, uh, was an important beginning for talking about developing a port city that would provide not only work but income for the country, fostering commercial fishing and perhaps commercial canning industry. The Red Sea is very rich with seafood. That might be a possibility to attract a population, but it doesn't have the capital investment for that. Finally, you could move the population to another area that has lots of water, which is the Hadramaut, which is in southern Yemen. It's, it's the largest valley in Arabia. It's the greenest valley of Arabia, and it has an ocean of water beneath it, more than enough, apparently to provide for Yemen's water needs for the next 30 years. But that would mean transferring the population from the north to a relatively sparsely populated area to the south when these two parts of the country are political loggerheads, right? So there's no way that the south will allow this. So. If the South secedes from the country, which is a possibility, they've been talking about it for a long time, it may be a matter of water transfer rights, but it's not going to be a case in point where you have massive migration from uh, the North to the South. So there are very few options. And I tell you, in, in my experience of working with water in Yemen, but I think practically anywhere, there's no silver bullet and there's no one solution. You have to think about water in the context of what you have geologically in terms of water or hydrologically in terms of water resources, uh, in terms of water demands. Um, and, uh, Ultimately, you have to think of politics, because I think that we have available to us all kinds of technological solutions. But is there the political will to kind of come in and implement these changes when there isn't a market to do it, or even the market has necessarily failed in many instances to do it? So I'm really a firm believer in the fact that if there are these solutions, it's largely going to be politics, uh, not technology, not some new whiz-bang invention that's going to do it, but the hard politics of negotiating, of figuring out, do you really need all that water? The sort of thing that Jerry Brown did as governor of California in the recent drought, right? Going to the various farmers and saying, you can't continue to grow almonds. It's too water costly. We're going to have to figure out a way for you to pull this out, start over, and shift to another kind of crop, right? Um, That's a hard thing to do with the agricultural lobby, right? But he had the clout and he had the public behind him at a critical moment when they had to do something, right? And that's the sort of politics that I'm talking about that is needed almost always when you have a critical water problem.
0: And what about the war? What's going to happen next now that the former president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, has been killed?
1: Now that he's dead, there really isn't anyone to do that kind of hard brokerage work. Furthermore, um, he is a head of a fairly powerful party. That party is still there. And that party remains loyal to his memory, to his family. So, in effect, you know, this war is going to deepen between the supporters of Ali Abdullah Saleh and those who assassinated him, the Houthis in in Yemen. And it is clear to me that the Saudis either don't want to or they're incapable of negotiating. Perhaps they even welcome this as an opportunity of weakening the country even more because one of its strongmen with his paramilitary and all of his money has now been neutralized, eliminated. Although I say his followers are still there. So I do not think this bodes well at all. I think that, in fact, this may very well mean that many more people are going to die, that the conflict will continue, and uh, that there isn't any clear ability nor will on the part of Saudi Arabia and the UAE and uh, anyone else who might want to finally end this thing, to end it, because it would require a political solution, and no one seems to know what that is. Now the Saudis are hoping they can finally, you know, beat the Houthis now that Ali Abdullah Saleh has been neutralized, or maybe his forces have moved over to Saudi Arabia in the effort of putting the Houthis down. That may be a calculation, but I really would be surprised if that works. So I'm very pessimistic.
0: The stakes in this conflict are incredibly high. If a solution isn't reached soon, the potential loss of life could be staggering. It's not an exaggeration to say that we could be looking at another Syria in the coming years, one possibly made even worse by the lack of food and access to clean water. And yet, as dire as the outlook is, Professor Caton leaves us with a glimmer of hope.
1: The one thing they can't destroy is Yemen's language and its poetry, its literature. That is still alive and thriving. Poetry is coming on the net all the time. Uh, some great political jokes are coming out of Yemen, and you can still see the brilliance of Yemen's imagination and their wit. That you can't destroy, and that will remain. And so you can still hear the voice of Yemen, and it's a brave voice, and it's a, it, even in the worst of time, it's a very funny voice. The hope is that Yemenis can use
0: their voices to tell their stories. The more we hear from them and hear about what's going on in Yemen, the more pressure there will be on the various parties involved to come to terms. You can do your part by sharing with your students what you've learned. If you teach current events, for example, carve out some time to discuss Yemen. Or if you teach middle school geography or ancient history, draw connections between the land and Yemen's past and what's going on there today. If all of us raise awareness in these small but significant ways, we can bring Yemen back into the spotlight and ultimately maybe even help prevent a catastrophe of epic proportions before it begins. Thanks for joining us and talk more next time on What Teachers Need to Know the Middle East. To learn more about today's episode and this podcast, visit www.primarysource.org podcasts.